You've reached Voicemails from History, a show which collects mementos from the past, a speech, poem, a conversation or interpretation, to tell stories of how the past affects the present. You have one new voicemail. Hello and welcome back to Voicemails from History with your host Mr. Amin. That was Qazi Mohammed, the president of the Kurdish Republic of 1946, reciting a poem he had penned named 2 plus 2 equals 1. Qazi Mohammed, born in Iran, Mahabad, was an intellectual, a sheikh, meaning an Islamic scholar, who led a Kurdish nationalist movement and founded the Kurdish Democratic Party of Iran, the KDPI. The republic lasted from the 22nd of January to the 15th of December 1946 and it ended when the Iranian military marched into western Iran and hanged Qazi Mohammed in the town square of Mahabad on March 31, 1947. It is both a remarkable and tragic chapter of 20th century Kurdistan, one that is retold to Kurdish children by their parents and suppressed from official narratives from the Iranian regime. So, in the last episode, we looked at the rebellion of Simkor Agha, a Kurdish chieftain leader of the Shikak tribe, Kurds who were native to the region in northwestern Iran. We discussed the general experience of Persia at the turn of the 20th century and the bloodless coup of Reza Shah, the new Pahlavi leader of the country. Reza Shah, keen to modernize and return prestige to Iran, embarked on a series of centralization policies, which aimed to bring Iran into the 20th century on par with Western Europe. Within this, his scope extended to the ethnicities and the tribes of Iran's borders, focusing on the Kurds, who had, until around the early 1900s, enjoyed a relative sense of borderland freedom. Very soon, there was an assault on Kurdish tribal organisation. Cultural and linguistic expressions were forbidden, the lands were centralised and brought under Tehran's control, tribal leaders were executed and exiled, and Kurds found themselves deported to other regions of the country. In sum, the tribal policy of Reza Shah was badly executed. It was cruel and aggressive and resulted in only widening the hostility between the Kurds and the Persians. Today, we're going to continue the story by skipping forward to 1946, when World War II led to a decisive change for the Kurds of Iran, with the formation of the Republic of Kurdistan, more commonly known as the Republic of Mahabad, the first implemented project of modern Kurdish nationalism. Now, there's some debates on the topic of how far we can consider the Republic of Mahabad as being, quote, nationalist, authentic. Now, from my own reading and the literature and the treaties formulated by the Republic leaders, there is no question that it was a nationalist endeavour, and the issue stems more from in what way was it nationalist, because obviously with nationalism, it differs with time and place. 
Now McDowell, who has in many ways become the top Western historian on the Kurds, argues in his book that there's a tension in the Republic between tribal ethnicity and nationalism, and other buzzwords like autonomy, independence, sovereignty. So I'm going to keep it simple in how I convey my understanding. So nationalism is the belief and action taken to showcase how a group's ethnic markers, e.g. language, deserves a designated territory. Autonomy is to have freedom to self-govern. So that's, you know, you have some power to make your own rules. But the thing about autonomy is that it needs to either be granted by a higher power or taken by force. And lastly, the sovereignty, to have the highest state of power. So to be sovereign means that you're able to have internal authority, but that you can also influence externally, that you're self-sufficient within and outside of your territory. Now, if we were political scientists, we could spend hours mulling over these definitions, but ultimately it's pointless until you apply the theory to practice. So from the start, I will outline my own parameters when talking about this historical event. The Republic of Mahabad was, one, an aspiration for freedom, two, an autonomous zone, three, it did not have independence and it certainly was not sovereign, Four, it was a practical expression of ethnic nationalism within its sphere, i.e. it was nationalism for the Kurds inside of Iran. And five, it was not a puppet state of the Soviet Union, as Wikipedia claims. It had Soviet backing in the form of intelligence and military economic aid, but to call it a puppet state is what I think by now quite an archaic Cold War term, which completely obscures the reality of Mehabad, that it was ideologically independent with a clear nationalist aspiration and it had autonomy and it strove to maintain that. And there's two quotes by Qazi Muhammad to sort of prove these parameters. His first quote said, we do not desire to imitate either the Americans or the Russians. We refuse to be in the position of animals of the civilized countries. And on another occasion, he told the British consul in Tabriz that the, quote, claim for autonomy was a blind and they were really after independence. So the declaration of the Republic went against direct wishes of the Soviet officials. So we can't consider it as a Soviet puppet state. On the other side, we have Western historians who say that since the leaders did not outrightly express their wish to bring in Kurds from the non-Iranian regions isn't truly a sort of nationalist agenda. But that sort of misses the point of the Middle East borderland politics. It was problematic enough trying to get the Kurds inside of Iran to band together, never mind bring the others in who were under the sovereignty of the Turks, the British in Iraq and French Syria. So within those guidelines, let's explain the story of the Kurdish Republic. What was it? How did it form? Who were the key leaders? What were the historical changes that led to it? And what happened in the aftermath of its collapse? Archie Roosevelt Jr. published an article in 1947, and he was one of the few Westerners who were granted the ability to visit Mahabad during this time and meet with Qazi Muhammad. I want to start off by reading a section of his opening paragraph because it does a good job of summarising the whole case. He says, Its stormy history and sudden collapse are one of the most illuminating stories of the Middle East. 
with its strangely discordant themes of tribal warfare, rival imperialisms, medieval chivalry, and idealistic nationalism, of a people split among five nations of which none were sympathetic. So, to set the scene, in 1941, the Allies invaded Iran. This was Britain and the Soviet Union. And they began a wartime occupation after ousting Reza Shah and replacing him with his own son. The British sphere took control of western Iran at Kirmanshah, the city and province, one of the largest Kurdish-majority regions. This was done with Iraq in mind. The Soviet Union took the areas north of this, areas of north and west Azerbaijan, and even though technically they held over the Saqqas, Berna and Serdesh city lines, it was under direct control. And the city in between these two allied zones was Mahabad. This whole area then became a contested region between the Kurds, the allies and the weakened Iranian government. Now both imperial powers had different ambitions. Britain was there to safeguard Iraq's eastern flank, but was also refusing to do anything to help Kurdish nationalism. Doing that would aggravate the, its own Arab and Kurd subjects, as well as Turkey, who they were keen to avoid moving towards allying with Hitler. The Soviet Union, newly formed and wishing to extend the blessing of communism across the world, was keen to safeguard Azerbaijan. On the other side, there's also the Kurds who were starting to mobilise and nationalise. Now, across the Middle East at this time, there's a lot going on in terms of Western interference post-World War I, and the Kurds were affected by these changes just as much as the Arabs were, the Jews and the Druids, and so on. And these ideas of independence and territory claiming were floating about. Now, it also witnessed the rise of the Islamic scholars, Muslim scholars, as being the new nationalist leaders in various Kurdish uprisings from the 1880s onwards. So how did these Muslim scholars take up the mantle of statehood? So if we begin in the mid-1800s, the Ottomans were becoming more centralising in their efforts to preserve their large empire. Before these reforms took place, it was Kurdish princes who governed over Kurdistan, and these were hereditary, semi-independent Kurdish rulers left to their own devices. And this was still sort of a 99% agrarian, pre-capitalist time. They enjoyed relative peace and only came into contact with the Ottoman sultans when it came to taxes and gifts. Now, when the reforms took place, one result was the suppression of these semi-independent hereditary princes, and this left a vacuum. Now, after the princes had been effectively vanquished, the Ottoman administration didn't replace them with suitable leaders, and gradually the Muslim scholars of the Kurdish population rose to the prominence of these former princes. Now, the elevation of these scholars to a nationalist leadership level shows us a few things. Firstly, that the Kurds held great reverence to these scholars. Second, that wholly secular figures had not yet emerged or were not given any support. But most importantly, the Kurds had managed to fuse together their religion, Islam and nationalism. And some of these great scholars revered um, were referred to as national leaders or as quote religious secular leaders. And as time and repression went on, support for their ideas grew. Now, Sheikh Obeidullah is cited as one of the first in a line of Kurdish leaders who began the struggle for nation-building. He led an uprising which challenged both Ottoman Turkey and Qajar Persia, 
and it took these empires and the Europeans by surprise. There's a record of Lord George Curzon, a British Empire sort of statesman, saying, quote, Sheikh Abedullah acquired a great reputation for personal sanctity and gradually came to be looked upon as the head of Kurdish nationality. End quote. Now, he was a Kurdish dignitary in the Ottoman Empire who ended up leading an uprising against them over the hardening policy of centralization. So the Ottoman Empire was affecting his autonomy um, in, the, in the Turkish region. But he also made moves to unite the Kurds more broadly. Mr. Thompson, the British minister in Tehran, wrote, There seems to be no doubt from his proclamations and correspondence which he has sent to various Kurdish chiefs along the Persian border that his design is to detach the entire Kurdish population from allegiance to Turkey and Persia and create a separate autonomous zone. In 1879, Sheikh Abedullah began the uprising, which crossed into northwestern Persia, something which, as I said, took them all by surprise. Now, by 1883, the rebellion was put down, but this example is cited as being a precursor to the 20th century nationalism, which we're going to see later on. So, nationalist sentiment in the Kurds grew in response to Iranian state building, which excluded them. In 1905, they had this constitutional revolution in which a new parliament was set up for the first time. It also declared that Persia would be the new official language of administration, education and public discourse. Now, when that's done in an autocratic country, it makes all the other languages unofficial. And these moves are what the Professor Abbas Vali calls Pahlavi absolutism. Interestingly, this was reinforced in 1979 during the Islamic Revolution of Iran, where the Kurds reached out to Khomeini to ask for inclusion, but were denied. So, the forces of Kurdish nationalism have been repression, absolutist policies, and exclusion from other forms of nation-building. So, let's talk about the beginning of the road to the Republic of 1946. Now, August 16, 1943, a group of Kurdish nationalists founded the Kormala. This was a political party, socialist and democratic in nature. It was a covert one. They met in secret in private houses, and only people of a wholly Kurdish nature were admitted membership. Two Soviet agents called Abdullahov and Hajinahov were sent to make contact with the Kormala members under the guise of purchasing horses for the Red Army. By April 1945, the Kormala had gone public and had established connections with the Soviets. During a ceremony of the Kurdistan Soviet Cultural Relations Society in April, the Kormala attended and it was at this meeting that Qazi Muhammad entered the scene more formally. He had, in fact, previously sent his men to make contact, discreetly offering his support. The Kormala had been hesitant at first, because of their democratic nature, to appoint a man well known as a strong character, who could and would eventually take over the Kormala. Now, Qazi Muhammad came from a distinguished family, and his predecessors had a strong history of resisting and assuming leadership positions. His father, Qazi Ali, had taken part in resisting the Russian military occupation during World War I, and his paternal uncle, Qazi Fetah, took a leading role in organising local resistance in Azerbaijan against the Russian Tsarist army. Even Reza Shah 
was reported to have shown the family marks of special favour. And in the 30s, on the recommendation of Iranian authorities, Qazi Muhammad was appointed to the judgeship of the city. He was known as a sincere and frugal man by his followers. Archie Roosevelt Jr., the American, draws a picture of the Qazi as a tolerable, cultured and patriotic man, who was, quote, tempered with broad-mindedness and moderation. When Qazi Muhammad and his brother were sentenced to death following the collapse of the Republic, the records show that he pleaded never for his own life, but for his brothers to be spared. So, how did the Republic of Kurdistan form? In the late summer of 1945, two key changes occurred. Firstly, Soviet officials started to agitate in the north of Azerbaijan to propel the people to form their own republic, the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic, adopting Azeri Turkish as its official language and demanding secession from Iran. Secondly, the Kormala had assumed Qazi Muhammad as its new leader and the Kurds were not going to swap one dominant group, the Iranians, for another, the Azerbaijanis. As early as September 1945, Roosevelt records that Qazi Muhammad and other notable leaders met with the Soviet consul in Tabriz, the capital of the new Republic of Azerbaijan. According to the reports, the Soviets offered their assistance in forming a Kurdish Republic, citing the violence the Kurds had received under the Pahlavi ruler. Upon their return, feeling like they were backed up, Qazi spent the next few weeks meeting with various Kurdish tribes and leaders to form the Kurdish Democratic Party and writing up a manifesto. Interestingly, this manifesto cited the Atlantic Charter, which was set out earlier back in 1941 by President Franklin Roosevelt and the Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And this charter basically set out humanitarian principles, which would later set the foundations for the UN. So the Kurds set out their plans calling for the following principles. One, to have equal human and constitutional rights. Two, to have freedom and self-government. Three, to obtain autonomy within the Iranian state. So no, they're not asking for secession, they were asking for self-governance. Four, to have the same laws for both peasants and notables, i.e. equality for the classes. Five, that there should be unity between Kurds, Assyrians and Armenians. And six, there will be plans for the progress of agriculture, trade, education and even hygiene. And so, on the 22nd of January 1946, the Republic of Kurdistan was set up. The inauguration was led by the Qazi, the tribal leaders of the surrounding lands, the Democratic uh, Party members, and also a Kurdish Iraqi ally, Mullah Mustafa and Sheikh Ahmed Berzani from Iraq, who had arrived with around 1,000 to 3,000 uh, fighters and families in support of the new republic. They were actually running from Iraq following a failed rebellion, but their support for Qazi Muhammad's endeavours showcased solidarity that was apparent in the beginning. A parliament was set up of 13 members and Qazi Muhammad was elected as the president. A tax system was initiated. On inauguration day, the Republic proclaimed the opening of a high school for Kurdish girls and laws were passed to provide universal primary education. Textbooks started to be printed in Kurdish and a daily newspaper started operating. The Qazi stressed the importance of language and communication in Kurdish. Two further magazines were formed, one of which was a woman's magazine. 
and the Soviet Union officials provided the newsprints. Under his rule, reports on the decline of robbery and murder reached uh, Roosevelt, who recorded that only one person was killed during his time in office. Clearly, Qazi Muhammad had modernization on his mind. This was not a power play for the sake of personal gain. The actions of the Republic were steps taken in the traditional formula of state building. And this was not just a threat to Iran, but to also, unfortunately, to some of the Kurdish tribal leaders who were becoming suspicious and jealous of the Qazi's achievements. A few months later, the Republic asked the Iranian government for the formation of, of a Supreme Council of Kurdistan. On June the 1st, Qazi Mohammed spoke to a French press agency and he said the following, that we, the Kurds, would be satisfied if the central government decided really to apply democratic laws throughout Iran and recognise the autonomy of our regional administration. End quote. You know, I think it's sad, depressingly so, that at this point in human history, such a request was denied by the Iranian central government. The general refusal of certain dominant groups of the Middle East to grant equality and just respect to other ethnic groups is one of its biggest flaws and, in my opinion, its key source of instability. Yes, Western interference has its role, but you can't interfere with the people who are united. If the various ethnic groups and populations united instead of killed each other, it would make it so much harder for foreigners to exploit. On that point then, let's go back to the Republic of Azerbaijan. Now in April, Qazi Mohammed had entered talks with the leader, uh, Peshevari, and they signed a treaty with some of the following clauses. They said that one, both republics will appoint their respective minority groups of Kurds and Azerbaijanis to government departments. And two, the military of the signatories will assist each other with military means when necessary. Now, this was only a temporary ceasefire, unfortunately, because by the end of that month, the chessboard had switched dramatically again. The government of Tabriz, aware that the Soviets were going to have to retreat out of Iran soon, knew that a vengeful Iranian government was waiting for them, as soon as the Soviets so much as stepped a foot out, and they entered talks. They agreed that all territory of the Republic would revert back to Iranian sovereignty. So they essentially legalized their position to avoid Iranian reprisals and they left Mehabad isolated as this rebel enclave within the province of Azerbaijan. A complete disregard to the treaty that they had signed just a few weeks earlier. So the Kurds had no leg left to stand on. When the Soviets were due to leave soon, it left no barrier for the Iranians to knock down. So Qazi Muhammad travelled to Tehran once more to ask to remain as leader of the province of Mahabad, instead to be made governor and to maintain some autonomy. At first, this was actually entertained by the prime minister, but as soon as this um, agreement was heard by the leader of Azerbaijan, who had made more concessions, pressure was put on to reject the Qazi's offer. And at this point, we can really start to see how once again Kurdish requests were rejected and piece by piece from all sides, the Soviets, the Azerbaijanis and of course Iran, their position became more and more uh, delicate. By the start of May, the Soviets were beginning to head out. Iranian forces were gathering and a series of skirmishes began on the edge of Sakhiz. 
At this point, the estimation of Mehabad's tribal armies altogether at most was anywhere between 10,000 to 13,000. The Soviets promised to send them guns and planes and heavy weapons, but nothing arrived. And week by week, support of the tribes originally supporting Mehabad started to dwindle. Qazi Muhammad called on the tribes of the Shikak and the Herki, who were in the northern parts, to come down and assist them in counter-offences. At first, the call was ignored, and when he did agree, these Kurdish uh, chiefs, it was a reluctant small number of fighters who were sent. And then in a move of pure expediency, in September, Amir Khan, leader of the Shikak and Herki tribes, met with the consul in Tabriz to pledge his allegiance to the Azerbaijanis, severing his ties with Qazi Muhammad. One by one, more tribes abandoned the cause, and by the end of November, only three to four tribes and clans remained loyal to Qazi Muhammad. Mahabad was now completely isolated, and yet what remained a legacy was that Qazi Muhammad refused to run. He stayed on. Even though, I should, I should mention, in early December, two of the Kurdish tribes were now taking part in actively recapturing lands and giving them back to Iran. So there's the, again, the disunited front, the hypocrisy um, sort of happening again. On December 13th, Qazi Muhammad's brother, Sadr Qazi, who was previously a deputy official in Tehran but supported his brother and Mahabad, acted as a go-between and told the Iranian general that the Kurds were willing to receive the army peacefully. On December 15th, they moved in and this ended the short-lived republic. In a sickening move, however, the Qazi and the generals exchanged visits, but two days later, the Qazi trio were arrested. So that's Muhammad, his brother, and his cousin, Saif Qazi, as well. A farce of a military tribunal was conducted, and on March 31st, 1947, all three of them were marched into the town square and hanged, surrounded by soldiers manning machine guns. It really was a vindictive response. I think any time you read in history of a person or group of people who were peaceful to start with and then surrendered and then were stabbed in the back, it just bites away at my faith in humanity. Now, the hanging of these three leaders shows us, in fact, just how scared the Iranians were that this new form of Kurdish nationalism was dangerous as it did infringe upon their perceived sovereignty, their power. McDowell writes it up nicely. He says, The Qazi trio perished because they personified the nationalist ideal. Now, soon after, all traces of the Republic were destroyed. The printing press offices, the schools, the documents, the Kurdish books were, were publicly burned as well. And the tribes who remained loyal to Qazi Muhammad also had their leaders executed. And just one final comparison between the Azerbaijani and Kurdish republics. When the Azerbaijan one returned to Iranian control, the supporters of the republic were brutally massacred. Scores of peasants, workers and shopkeepers were killed. In contrast, there was none of that in Mehabad. The, the, there was obviously an outcry towards the executions of the Qazi trio, but ultimately no Kurdish person killed another, which again shows how popular the Qazi's rule had been. So there's three key reasons then why the Republic failed. Firstly, the disunity between the Kurdish tribes and the Kurdish city folks. Two, that Soviet backing was only temporary. 
and that as soon as they pulled out, the republic was doomed. And finally, central Iran's refusal to entertain peace talks with the Kurds and their insistence on prioritising Persians and Azeri Turks over the Kurds. Now, I think like other historical moments, it's nice to reflect upon what could have been if Qazi Muhammad had fled to safety. Um, Could he have gathered forces again in a different context? But then again, it does make sense that he stayed on, not just because of his staunchly loyal character, but maybe he knew that he couldn't do anything outside of Iran and therefore standing his ground was the only sensible and viable option. And this episode of Kurdish history has become a landmark in the national Kurdish memory as well. And there's a sort of tragic irony to it as well, because during his life and his work, Qazi Muhammad didn't have the wider support of his own people, despite the fact that he worked for it so diligently and he ultimately paid the highest sacrifice. But once he did that and he became a martyr, now he's universally respected you'd be hard-pressed to find a single Kurd who has a negative or bad word to say against Qazi Muhammad. And this show is a fan club of his. So, following the collapse of Mahabad, the political life of Kurds in Iran was subdued. Kurdish regions were not fully included in the subsequent reforms of the country. So roads, government resources, bridges, hospitals, they were not built in proportion to the Kurdish population. Repression continued well into the 60s, and as I mentioned earlier, the 1979 Islamic Revolution, despite the Kurds voicing their support and extending a hand to Khomeini, they were rejected and persecuted. Clashes were frequent between the Iranian government and the two main Kurdish parties, the Kormala and the KDPI, throughout the 80s and 90s. Leaders of these parties were routinely assassinated. Members of the parties were regularly arrested. And there's little distinction made between being a member and being a supporter. The Iranian regime is also not opposed to using torture or the death penalty. Data collected by the Kurdistan Human Rights Geneva Organization showcased that from January 1st to December 31st of 2020, there were 69 executions of Kurdish prisoners of which only 37 names were shared. The data also shows that over 55% of executions between 2010 to 2018 were of Kurdish activists. Most notably, in 2021, Zara Mohammadi's story became news. She is a young Kurdish woman, a languages teacher and activist, who is the founder of the Norjin Cultural Association, and it aims to teach Kurdish children their language. She was arrested back in 2019, charged with the, quote, forming groups that would harm the national security of Iran. That's what Iran perceives as being a danger to them, Kurds knowing their language. She was released on bail to the tune of 27,000 US dollars with the support of Global Donations and Amnesty International. Her trial declared her guilty, obviously, and she was sentenced to five years in jail. The Kurdish movement for equality and independence in Iran continues. This was Voicemails from History with your host, Mr. Amin. Thank you so much for listening. As always, let me know if you enjoyed the episode or want to discuss anything I mentioned. I'd love to have a conversation. Until then, keep up to date with episodes and book reviews by following the Instagram page, Voicemails from History. Thank you again and see you next time.